Right, 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 33. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being so wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we are too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am speaking as a madman with far, far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I have received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. Who is weak? Am I not weak? Who is made to fall, and am I not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and the Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor of, under King Arteus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Good evening. Happy college football season. It's worth mentioning, and congrats to our dearly beloved elder, David Raymer, for Notre Dame's strong showing yesterday. Well, tonight we continue our series in 2 Corinthians, and unfortunately, this would be the last of the series. Um, it's sort of like ending the season without getting to the the climax, but it will do, uh, and hopefully one of these days we'll circle back and sort of finish off where we left off. Uh, but tonight we're going to continue to look at Paul's boasting of himself. Okay. Let's pray together and uh, we'll dive right in. God, we turn to you now because we need you. You are the living bread, and we need to be fed by you. So, Lord, speak now. Give us your word, your truth. Spirit, apply these things to our hearts. Strengthen our faith, our love for you, and our resolve to live as your people who are now in relationship with you and sent out into the world as light and hope. Bless our gathering now and the preaching of the word we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you were here last week, we looked at 2 Corinthians 10, and Glenn talked much about Paul boasting in his weakness. And it sounds a little off for those of us here in Washington because there's not a whole lot of room for weakness and suffering in a city that prizes power and status. 
can't remember the last time someone actually wrote on the top of their resume, I failed third grade, or I had to repeat middle school. Those things aren't going to make it very far in this city, yet Paul invites us to be weak. And it's not because we want to be countercultural only. There is a gospel thing here. Ultimately, as we will see, that in our weakness, Paul will go on to say in chapter 12, Christ's power is made perfect. And that's what Paul is after. He's not after self-deprecating humor, false modesty. No, he's saying, let's shine the glory of Christ together as we boast about our weakness, our shortcomings, and let the world see the grace that is more than sufficient for the church. Okay? Tonight, we're going to talk uh, about two things. First, let's look at Paul's reasons for boasting. Paul begins this section with a request asking that they, the audience, bear with him in a little foolishness. Because, well, he's about to make a complete fool of himself by boasting about his pedigree as a true Israelite and his resume as an apostle of Christ. And you get the feeling that Paul is uneasy, right? You don't see the same kind of confidence uh, as you do in the book of Romans as Paul is unpacking rich theology, but he sort of circles back a few times to say, sorry, I have to do this. I, I'm really speaking like an idiot here. A madman, please just bear with me. And you can, you can tell that Paul is not very accustomed to boasting about himself. 2 Corinthians 10 closes with a word about proper boasting. Paul quotes Jeremiah chapter 9, the Old Testament scripture reading, that was read to us earlier in the service. And he writes, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. And you would you expect then chapter 11 to read a little differently. You would expect Paul to list a number of things in which where God powerfully worked in Paul's life. I mean, the whole thing about him becoming blind on the road to Damascus, I think is a pretty sure sign of God powerfully working in his life. Or how about the extraordinary miracles that Paul performed in places like Acts 19.12, where Luke writes, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched Paul's skin were carried away to the sick, and then their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, these these are things that you would want to list if you want to prove yourself as someone commended, approved by God. But Paul doesn't go exactly there. Now, we're going to talk about the content of his boasting, but let's look at the reasons. The first reason for Paul's boasting is his love for the church. He loves the church. He tells us so. Here in verse 11, because I do not love you, God knows I do. Paul planted this church, and in Acts 18, Jesus said to him through a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And for the next 18 months, Paul stayed in Corinth to serve 
a small group of believers that had gathered after his preaching, and he poured himself into it and watched it grow into a congregation. And as such, there was a special bond between Paul and the church. My wife loves gardening, and she's gotten pretty good over the years. And thanks to her, every year we enjoy this beautiful backyard. And uh, I have to admit, as much as I can appreciate it, I know our experience of the garden is not the same. And it's not because I don't have a green thumb and I, didn't, I don't know how to appreciate these things, but she poured herself into this. It was her project. It bears our heart and soul, and she's got all these bug bites to prove it. Whereas I sort of, you know, walk by it on the way out to throw the trash. That's pretty much my contribution to the garden. And so when we stand in, in the back deck looking at our garden, I know that my appreciation pales in comparison to her appreciation of the garden. And that's how it was for Paul. It would be different if Paul had sort of found his way to Corinth and was invited to speak at this church about Christ and him resurrected. No, he actually started from the very beginning. And he saw this thing grow and become a congregation. So when this church that he loved so much was under threat from these super apostles, Judaizers that were seducing the church with partial gospel and false Jesus, Paul had to take action. After all, Paul had watched this movie before. Back in Genesis chapter 3, when Eve was deceived, things didn't end very well. The Corinthian church, sadly, isn't the only one tempted by a partial gospel and a false Jesus. You and I, we live in a world today where my truth and my feelings function as the ultimate truth. And we were talking a little bit about this at our session retreat, how we as individuals, based on my truth and my feelings, we critique institutions and basically everyone and everything around us. And we sit as the ultimate authority on all of these things. And consequently, this sort of thinking and philosophy has infiltrated into the church and has led to the watering down of discipleship, dare I say, meaning I don't see a whole lot of people wrestling with the truth and struggling to submit under the authority of the word. Rather, we sit above the word and we pick and choose what we like based on how I feel about that passage. And in doing so, we have compromised our faith. It is no wonder that church in Many places in our country have lost the power, the compelling witness that we once were. I wonder if even some of us, or maybe us as a church, were settling for things that tickle our ears rather than allowing the Spirit to come and really convict us of our sin, to refine us and to form us into the moral character of Christ. Half-truth and partial gospel have always been a threat to the church, and we must be diligent. We must go back to the word, and we must struggle and wrestle with it. 
even when we don't like it, because it is Christ himself. Listen to these words by D.A. Carson, a a theologian and commentator. I thought it was so good. I had to share it with you. It's a bit long, so bear with me. He writes, From the time of the fall to the present day, men and women have frequently succumbed to the deceptive devices of the devil. Christians are especially open to the kind of cunning deceit that combines the language of faith and religion with the content of self-interest and flattery. We like to have our Christianity shaped less by the cross than by triumphalism or rules or charismatic leaders or subjective experiences. And if this shaping can be coded with assurance of orthodoxy, complete with cliché, we may not detect the presence of the deceiver nor see that we're being weaned away from sincere and pure devotion to Christ, to a different gospel. I pray that we would be vigilant as a church. To keep the Corinthians from shipwrecking their faith, Paul proceeds to expose the truth about these super apostles. Look at verse 13 and following. These men, he writes, are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And in all this, we sense Paul's love for the church. As a parent who cares much for their children and so are willing to get between them and the harm, Paul inserts himself between these super apostles and the Corinthian church and he exposes the truth about these deceivers because he loves his church. And the second reason for Paul's Foolishness is his love for the gospel. In Paul's day, traveling speakers like these super apostles were accorded status by the fees they charged. If you charged a high speaker fee, that meant that you were either a great speaker or what you had to say was of utmost importance. And in a world where you are what you got paid for, things didn't look very good for Paul because he was doing his work for free. I mean, you can imagine some of the conversations taking place in the Corinthian church as people were speaking over their breath like, he does this for free? Like, would you trust a free mechanic? Probably not. And if that's the case, you can kind of see the hesitation among the Corinthian believers. For Some in Corinth, this was a sure sign that Paul was not an apostle. There's no way. Come on. Like, really? And if he is, then this message about Jesus is probably not that important. It's one thing for Paul to be slandered, but there is no way he's going to sit still when the gospel is being defamed. He had to do something. And so he now moves to action where he fights for the supremacy of the gospel. Now, before we move to our second point, let me just challenge us. Those of us who are members and regular attenders here at Grace Downtown, how might you love this church? How is the Lord calling you to care for one another in this body?
I know we all go through seasons where it's too busy. I got too much at work. Children are going crazy on the home front. I, I get that. But love is not love if it's just here. Love always moves us into action. And so as we think about how we might love this congregation, I want to encourage you to sign up to serve, to volunteer, and to be part of what God is doing in this city. And just as Glenn said, we don't want to just celebrate past 20 years. We want to lay the tracks for next 20 years. And that chapter of this church life involves you, your contribution, your service. All right, let's talk about the subject of boasting. And we're going to spend the bulk of our time here. Um, in this, now, we come to the second half of the chapter where Paul begins to highlight his pedigree and resume. And uh, as we go down the list, like each one of these things is like a badge of honor that legitimizes his apostleship. And we follow along. We're like, yes, yes. But that wasn't the case for the original audience. To understand why the Corinthians were more than confused by what Paul is doing here, you have to understand the history of the city. Ancient Corinth was a powerful and influential city that rivaled the likes of Athens and Thebes in many respects. In 146 BC, Corinth was leveled by the Romans. I guess they had enough, right? Enough is enough. You guys are causing too much trouble. And so they came down with the hammer and they leveled the city. Men were killed. Women and children were sold into slavery. And for good measure, the Romans burned the city to the ground. And for uh, the next century or so, this area remained largely uninhabited. It was literally an ash heap. Julius Caesar saw the strategic placement of the city and found Corinth, or re-found Corinth, I should say, in 44 BC. And in less than 100 years, it went from an ash heap to the most successful and influential, one of the most successful and influential cities in the Roman world. The people that came to Corinth didn't simply end up in Corinth. It was their destination. They came to make it in a fast-developing city that was quickly becoming the epicenter of all things culturally, politically, and economically. Sounds a bit similar, doesn't it? In that sense, Corinth is a lot like Washington. D.C. is cosmopolitan, ideologically pluralistic, and highly influential. And for that reason, it draws highly motivated and cause-oriented people where they can then beef up their resume, okay? You don't end up in D.C. because you want to start a family here, right? You come to D.C. because you want to make it, to prove yourself or to change the world, okay? And in cities like Corinth and D.C., suffering and weakness, as I said earlier, aren't exactly very high on the list of desirable traits, and so when Paul boasts about his accomplishments, the Corinthians were expecting something like this. And I borrow from D.A. Carson once again, that I have planted more churches than any other apostle out there, that I preach the gospel in more places than anybody else out there, 
that I have won more converts than anyone. I mean, it's not even close. I have traveled more miles, right? I have written more books. I have raised more money. I mean, if you want to do a side-by-side comparison between me and the next 10 apostles, go for it. I mean, that kind of list might have changed the minds of some in Corinth, but that's not what Paul writes in chapter 11. Instead, he goes in the opposite direction of oversharing his suffering and weakness. It's like one of those super cringy moments in a movie where you just can't, they're like, oh no, I I can't. I can't bear to watch this any longer. I, I don't know about you, but when I get to that moment in the movie, I either fast forward or walk out of the room. I just can't, I'm so embarrassed for them. You know what I mean? And that's what's happening here. I mean, some were thinking, Paul, are you out of your mind? Like, we want to support you. We want to receive your ministry, but you are not helping, man. Like, you are shooting yourself on both feet. Like, what in the world? You're not blessed by God. You're cursed by him. Surely you are not an apostle. Let's take a look at what he actually writes. Verse 22. I am a Hebrew, an Israelite, an offspring of Abraham. Now, that's a strong start, okay? That was a good start. You can hear the people say, "Mm mm-hmm, that's right, Paul. Give it to him, right? He had the ethnic and the religious identity that came with all the rights and privileges as God's people. Listen to Romans 9, 4 and 5, verses 4 and 5. Paul writes here about the uniqueness and the special status that the Israelites, the ethnic Israelites had. They're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Like, yes, Paul. All right. And then the wheels come off. Verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments. Wait, what? With countless beatings. Uh Uh-oh. And often near death. Paul continues, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. This was the most severe form of Jewish punishment. It was believed that the 40th lash would lead to certain death. Three times I was beaten with rods. This was an instrument of Rome and therefore a Gentile punishment. Once I was stoned, and this happened in Lystra in Acts 14, where his attackers thought he was dead, right? And so they just left him, okay? Three times shipwrecked and spent the night at a day adrift at sea, constant, constant dangers from everywhere, including his own people, often went hungry and thirsty without much sleep. Apart from all this, verse 28, he faced the daily pressures of anxiety for all the churches. Paul continues in verse 29, who is weak and I am not weak. There he is saying, if someone in the church becomes weak in their faith, okay, he becomes weak. Literally, the Greek word there means it weighs heavy on his heart. It's a picture of a shepherd who cares for his flock. He's not distant and agnostic about these churches and believers that are out there. No, he is very much sympathetic of where they are. Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant. Here he's saying, 
he becomes angry when the church or God's people are on the brink of falling away from their faith. Like here in Corinth, he is angry. In other words, he had divine jealousy for the church. Just when you thought that things couldn't get any worse, Paul adds this little piece at the end of this chapter about him being lower through a basket. Remember that? It's like, where I, what is this, Paul? Verse 32, at Damascus, okay? The governor under King Aratus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in a wall and escaped his hand. You're like, this is what I'm not following. Okay, well, let me help. There's a Latin word, corona muralis, and it means the mural crowned and was given in honor of the soldier who was the first to scale the walls of a besieged city. Okay? The guy that's out there in the front, brave enough to say, forget it, I am risked and he climbed. He's the first one over the wall. And that person will be rewarded with this crown. And Paul here shares not a highlight worthy of a crown, but a low light. A truly embarrassing story. It's a parody on Corona Morales, where he's not the first one over the wall, but he's the first one down the wall as he's escaping, fleeing danger. You can almost picture the disappointment in the Corinthians at this point, right? Like, Paul, man, what is this? This, you're, this is not jiving with us, man. Like, we want to be for you. You started this church. We've known you for a while, but what are we supposed to do with this? You see what Paul is doing? He's challenging the Corinthian church, one kind of like us, a church that prizes power, status, where we stay guarded with the cards very close to our chest. We dare not show our weakness, become vulnerable. For others, because that's how the game is played in the city. And I think if Paul were here today, he would say, I can go on and on and on about all kinds of stuff that happened. Not highlights, the stuff that would make the resume, but things that might make you question my, my apostleship. And here, Paul invites us to understand that our weakness is an opportunity for the grace of God to shine. It is in our brokenness that his glory radiates. So the world is not seeing what we as people, human beings can accomplish in this city for the next 20 years, but the world begins to witness what God can do through broken people. Jars of clay who would say, I can't, Lord. I know myself but you can. And we want to make ourselves available to you. We want to give all that we are and we have so that you would use us for your glory in this city. Because we tried this human thing, and we aren't the only ones. We've, many have tried it, and it doesn't end very well. We get what we can do, and that's not very amazing. But when we give ourselves to the Lord, 
we're going to witness some powerful things happening in this city. There is a Japanese practice. It's called kintsugi, and it means join with gold. And I'm sure some of you are familiar with this. It is an old Japanese art form where a potter repairs a broken pottery by mending the broken parts with either gold or silver. The intent is not to hide the brokenness, but actually see it repaired, made whole, okay, with something beautiful and glorious. So now, as a result, you have something better than it was before. I mean, if that's not a perfect illustration for what Paul is trying to do here and what he is inviting us to, I'm not sure what is. We try to cover up our brokenness, fill the cracks with impressive things that we have done. But Paul says, no, you're missing the whole point because your weakness is an opportunity. So how do we, and we'll end with this thought, practically boast about our weakness? Can I give two suggestions? First, we have to acknowledge our limits. If we think we have all the wisdom and power necessary for life and for godliness and for the mission in the city to be its light and hope, yeah, we're not going to get very far. We're not. By acknowledging our limits and then going to him, and trusting in him, it, it's a heart thing, it's a heart posture, right? To humble ourselves before him, okay? to acknowledge him. I think that is the first step to seeing God work and doing great things in the city. Second, we don't simply acknowledge, but then we lean into him. Okay? We lean into the Lord, we trust in him. Okay? And we do this by engaging in the means of grace. The word, prayer, and the sacraments of baptism and communion. I mean, we get to see all of this. This is beautiful. Okay? It's another way of saying, God, I can't, but you can, and I desperately need you. And I hope we would be diligent in engaging in the means of grace, that we would safeguard those times to be with the Lord, to feast on his word, his truth, and to be nourished by it to be fed by it, that our faith is now stronger, vision more clear as we engage the city together as a church. So let me just say, as we look back at the past 20 years, we want to praise God. We want to praise God for his faithfulness to us. Indeed, he has been good. And he has met us every time we turn to him. And that is the exact reason why we can be confident in the next 20 years as we lean into him, go to him, that he will meet us and that he will use us to accomplish great things in this city. So brothers and sisters, let's make sure we're weak and let's go to him whose grace is more than sufficient for us. Let's pray together.